0: Welcome to the study of God's Word with Pastor and author Ed Taylor, recorded live from Calvary Chapel in Aurora, Colorado. To learn more about the many resources available through Abounding Grace Media, visit us online at calvaryaurora.org or download our free app on all platforms. And now, here's Pastor Ed to take us into our study. Amen. Take your Bibles, open them to two places, would you? Hebrews chapter 5 as we start a new chapter today, and Leviticus chapter 16. And for some of you, it's a very exciting day, because for some of you, this will be the first time you study verse by verse through a chapter in Leviticus because that's what we're going to do. In order to understand the significance of what Paul is writing to the Hebrew believers, we need to understand the foundation that's given to us in the book of Leviticus. And the title of my Bible study today is The Role of the High Priest. The Role of the High Priest. Because remember, the book of Hebrews is written to a group of Jewish believers that are being tempted to leave Jesus and go back to Judaism. They're being tempted to leave the reality of a real relationship with Jesus Christ and go backwards to the shadows of Judaism, of religion. And so what does the author do? The author says, you've got to keep your eyes firmly focused on Jesus because he is superior and greater than anything you would want to go back to, especially religiously. We've already learned in our few chapters that we've studied that Jesus is the greater word, that Jesus is the greater than the angels, greater than the prophets, greater than the law, greater than Moses, greater than Abraham, greater than the Sabbath. We even learned that Jesus himself personally is our true and real rest, that he is our Sabbath. Remember in Hebrews chapter one, verse one, it says, God, who at various times and various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he's appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. He's greater. And now, beginning in chapter 5, for many chapters, we're going to learn how Jesus is the greater high priest. He is the final high priest, greater than any of the men that have come before him because Jesus is God in human flesh. We've already been introduced to Jesus as high priest. We learn in chapter 2 that he's a compassionate high priest. We learn in chapter 4 that he's the key to holding fast. In chapter 4, we learn that he sympathizes with our weaknesses. We learn that he provides access to the very throne room of God. He is the greater high priest. Notice with me now in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 1. For every high priest taken from among men is appointed for men in things pertaining to God that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can have compassion on those who are ignorant and going astray since he himself is beset by weakness. Now God is the one who appointed the priesthood in the Old Covenant when God gave the law you will remember to Moses when Moses ascended the Mount Mount Sinai God is the one himself that instituted the priesthood and he gave precise instructions of where the priest would come from the priest would would have to come through the family of Aaron the tribe of Levi And then the family of Kohath, because Levi had three sons. And they were all responsible for taking care of the tabernacle. Now, those of you that are Bible students, you know that God instituted this place of worship known as the tabernacle. It was a temporary tent structure that they could fold up and take with them as they would move on. And then when they'd settle, they'd set the tabernacle up, put at the holy and holies, and they would go in. And that represented the very place that God said he would meet with his people. And then the tabernacle was replaced with the building of a more permanent structure of what is known as the Temple Mount today, the temple. And today, if you go to the Temple Mount, if you have the privilege of coming to uh, Israel with us, uh, we'll take you to the Temple Mount, and you'll notice today there is no temple there. There are two big buildings there, one with a big golden dome. Uh, they're They're both reserved for Islamic worship, but there's no temple, which is fascinating in and of itself because we know, according to the Bible, that the temple will be rebuilt. And one of the places we'll take you when you visit Israel with us, right at the end of the trip, we'll take you to a place in Jerusalem known as the Temple Institute. And in the Temple Institute, these guys are ready for the rebuilding of the temple, because God said the temple is going to be rebuilt, and it will. Now, they desire to be a part of this, so they've got all the clothing, they've got all the instruments, they have everything ready so that when the temple is is there, they've even identified the lines of people that will be in there taking care of all of the worship. They're ready. Now, they're not ready there uh, because Messiah has come. They still have blinders on thinking Messiah will come, and it's a fascinating experience to hear their presentation, to hear where they came from. But back with Moses... God himself instituted the priesthood. And so Levi had three three sons and their families were responsible in different places in the place of the tabernacle and the temple for worship. His first son was named Gershon and he was responsible to take care of the tabernacle veil, the fence, the curtains, according to Numbers chapter 3. His second son, Merari, and his family was responsible for the boards and the pillars and the infrastructure. His son, Kohath, His family was responsible for all of the worship inside of the tabernacle, and the high priest would come through the family of Kohath, and we refer to this often in a couple different ways. Sometimes we refer to it as the Levitical priesthood, and other times you might hear it referred to as the Aaronic priesthood, and there's still yet one more priesthood that we're going to be introduced to in Hebrews, and and so it's going to take some time as we develop it, but that's the priesthood through Melchizedek, and we'll get to that soon enough. But for for today, I want you to put on your Bible study seatbelts, because that's what we're going to do. We're going to come back, if you want to turn there with me, to Leviticus chapter 16, and we're going to walk through this institution of the responsibility and role of the high priest and what God said specifically for him to do, and what is his responsibility. So Leviticus chapter 16, and we'll pick up right there in verse 1. The Bible says, Now the Lord spoke to Moses after the death of his two sons of Aaron when they offered profane fire before the Lord and died. And the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron your brother not to come at simply any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat which is on the ark, lest he die. For I will appear in the cloud above the mercy seat. Thus, verse 3, Aaron shall come into the holy place with the blood of a young bull as a sin offering and of a ram and a burn offering. And he shall put the holy linen tunic and the linen trousers of his body, and he shall gird himself with the linen sash, and with the linen turban he shall be attired. These are the holy garments, and therefore he shall wash his body in water and put them on, and he shall take them from the congregation of the children of Israel, two kids of the goats as a sin offering, and one ram as a burn offering. So those are very precise instructions to ritualistically cleanse, to put on special garments to take special animals, this is what he's to do. Aaron is the high priest. He's to come in the way that God prescribes, which reminds us today that God is the one that dictates the terms of relationship with us, with you and me. You could say it today, you just can't worship God any old way you want to. You, you can't, or we might even translate that in today's language, you can't just do your own thing. You, you, you know, and that's a really hard thing to hear in a culture like ours, because we have been taught very strongly this sense of self-independence, that, that we are independent, and that in some ways we've learned that the world seems to revolve around us, but it doesn't. By faith in Jesus Christ, your world and mine doesn't revolve around us, it revolves around Him, the Son, not S-U-N, but S-O-N. And He prescribes... Like a good doctor, exactly what's needed for strong spiritual health in our relationship. And so, when it came to worship, the children of Israel just couldn't worship any old way they wanted to. They just couldn't do their own thing. They couldn't just do what they wanted to do. But this was the way that God desired. Now, it's interesting, isn't it? In the first verse, it speaks about these two sons of Aaron. Would you turn back to chapter 10 in Leviticus? We're going to learn about these guys. Their names are Nadab and Abihu. Nadab and Abihu. Notice what they do in Leviticus chapter 10, in verse 1. It says, then, Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took a censer and put fire in it and put incense on it. And he offered profane fire before the Lord. Now, some of you might have a King James. I think it says strange fire, profane fire which he had not commanded them. So fire, no, this is God's response. Fire went out from the Lord and devoured them, and they died before the Lord. So I think it's important that we learn to worship the way God wants us to worship. But I'm grateful, this isn't how he deals with us today. Aren't you grateful? Because, I mean, there is an example in the New Covenant. I know this is Old Covenant, but there is an example in the New Covenant where in the early church, There was judgment immediately from God on two people. Remember their names? Ananias and Sapphira. What were they doing? They were offering strange worship, if you will, profane worship. How? Well, remember they sold a piece of land. And I believe they were impressed by a guy by the name of Barnabas who also sold a piece of land. And he brought all the proceeds in and gave it and laid it at the apostles' feet because God moved upon him to give in such a generous way. Well, Ananias and Sapphira, they see this. They also sell a piece of land, but they conspired together to say that they're giving everything, but to keep things back for themselves. In essence, they came hypocritically as liars to worship God. Except that their lie wasn't just to Peter. And their lie wasn't just to the other apostles. And their lie just wasn't to the church family as a whole. That's not really what they were judged for. They were judged because the Bible says that they lied to the Holy Spirit, and they didn't need to do that, because God never told anyone to sell everything even to the church. There was never any kind of instruction to do that. He was obviously moving upon people in the Spirit to do do that, but they could have sold everything and given five dollars, or given, they could have given whatever the Lord had put on their hearts, but they wanted to be known, and boom, they were taken out slain in the spirit. The example of slain in the spirit in the Bible, but they don't get up. So I'm grateful that God doesn't do that today. Because if he did, you'd have a new pastor every week. Because we all fail. As a matter of fact, you'd only probably make it a week. And then a whole new church would come in. It's like, oh, brand new, it's all fresh. And then bam, ba bam, ba ba man, it all over the place. And it would be very difficult. But instead, what did God do? He sent his own son, Jesus Christ, God in human flesh, coming to you and to me in our worst moment, not in our best. Coming to us in our worst condition, not cleaned up and in order. Why? Because he loves us. The prescription of God in relationship today comes from love through this finished sacrifice and work of Jesus Christ upon the cross. That it was his blood that was slain for the forgiveness of your sin and mine. And certainly God has prerogative to deal with his children as ever he desires to deal with his children. But I'm grateful that when he sees me and sees you, he sees us in Christ. It's such an important place to be. So you couldn't just come anytime and do your own thing. Nadab and Abihu, they, they showed that to the nation. And perhaps Aaron is a little hesitant now that he worships God the right way, you know, that he walks in the right way. And now the instruction comes, no, you tell Aaron this is what he's to do. And so notice in verse 6, Aaron shall offer the bull as a sin offering, which is for himself, and make atonement for himself and for his house. He shall take the two goats and present them before the Lord at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. And then Aaron shall cast lots for the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other lot for the scapegoat. Now pause right there for a second. Have any of you ever heard or used the phrase scapegoat in your life? It comes from right here. You'd be amazed when you're reading the Bible, how many things, how many phrases are in the world today that come directly from the Bible. Now, it's used a little differently in the world than the Bible defines it, but we'll get to that in a moment. But there's two goats here. One is going to be offered up as a sacrifice, and one is going to be the scapegoat. Notice verse 9. And Aaron shall bring the goat on which the Lord's lot fell, and offer it as a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot fell to the scapegoat shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement upon it and to let it go as a scapegoat into the wilderness. Now, notice verse 11. Aaron shall bring the bull of the sin offering, which is for himself, and make atonement for himself and for his house, and shall kill the bull as the sin offering, which is for himself. Then, verse 12, he shall take the censer full of burning coals of fire from the altar before the Lord, with his hands full of sweet incense beaten fine and bring it inside the veil and he shall put incense on the fire before the lord that the cloud of incense may cover the mercy seat that is on the testimony lest he die he shall take some of the blood of the bull and sprinkle it with his finger on the mercy seat on the east side and before the mercy seat he shall sprinkle some of the blood with his finger 7 times it's a fascinating thing that once a year on the day of atonement a high priest would come in to the very Holy of Holies where the Ark of the Covenant would sit. Remember, the Ark of the Covenant was a small box. They would put a lid on it with two angels. The lid would be known as the mercy seat. And once a year, there would be the blood of the bull and the goat spread in the hands of, in the, hands of the priest. Now, it's interesting that the priest both comes in first with the sweetness in his hands, the incense, and the sweet-smelling, and then with those very hands, he would then also take the blood, and with his hands, spread the blood on the mercy seat. This was a very messy, bloody day of sacrifice. It reminds us of a couple things, doesn't it? First of all, within the family of God, this is a messy place, and you need to understand that if a church is truly filled with men and women who love Jesus Christ and are born again, It's a very messy place, because we've all come from different backgrounds, and we've all come from different places, and we all deal with different issues, and it is a misconception, and it is a false expectation to think that the most holy, perfect place on the planet earth is the church of Jesus Christ. It's not. You're surrounded with some really difficult people in this room. Did you know that? Give me an amen, because you're the difficult person I'm talking about, (laughs) myself included. We are are men and women prone to sin, stumbling and falling, and it's a mess. And we need to learn by the grace of God to make room for the messes of others and to actually, God's calling some of you to step right into the difficulty of someone else. Not to stand there with some hand of prejudgment or to look down on someone, but rather to give a brother a hand and help a sister up in the difficulties of their life. The church is a messy place, but the worship of God has always been a messy thing. Or you could even say a bloody mess. Because the only way that we can come together, you know, if you think this is a bloody mess with the sacrifice of animals, imagine what the cross looked like. And the torturous difficulty, the, the difficult scene of the torture and the brutality. And, I mean, Jesus was beaten so bad. That unless you knew him beforehand, the Bible says his face, or you know, in the Old King James it says his visage, that that his countenance, that his face was so mangled that unless you knew him, you wouldn't have recognized him. You wouldn't have known who he was. And so this worship in the tabernacle was a bloody mess. And it involved the hands. It was bittersweet, the sweetness of the incense. And really the bitterness of death. That the price for the sin of the nation was the shed blood of a sacrificial animal. You see, when the high priest came in to the Holy of Holies, as only the highest priest could once a year, something miraculous took place. And it wouldn't have been visible to the naked eye. As many of the times God working in our lives isn't visible to the naked eye. But something miraculous took place. There was a substitutionary Offering the bull, the blood of the bull for the sins of the people, which again becomes a type and a picture of, and it makes sense now. It makes sense, doesn't it? When John the Baptist sees Jesus coming and he points toward him, he says, There he is, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. Here's the thing the old covenant in Judaism, the sins of of the people were just covered but not removed. So that every year on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would have to repeat this every year. And God would save the nation of old like he would save you today by faith. By faith. Even Abraham, before the law was even instituted, because of Abraham's faith, it was accounted to him for righteousness. And they would believe that this substitutionary blood would be the one element that God prescribed and required was offered, and forgiveness came. And so it's very specific. And I I noticed that the atonement, which is really a word that speaks of substitutionary sacrifice, when you say atonement, it's like something offered in order to become made one. matter of fact, you can use the word atonement and actually use it to remember what it means. At-one-ment. And it's the idea of becoming one with God. And that can only come through the shedding of blood. It couldn't come any other way. And so the high priest Aaron here would function in a way to worship God the way it was prescribed. He would enter into the very Holy of Holies and sprinkle the blood with his hands on the mercy seat seven times. The Ark of the Covenant was a small box with a lid on it and now would be covered in blood. And it's very significant. One of the things that was inside that box was the law, the testimony, reminding them of their failure to keep the law. You know, that's the purpose of the law. You could reduce the law even just to the Ten Commandments and you're like, wow, okay, let's go through the Ten Commandments and see how good my life is doing. And you know, by the time you get through a few, you're like, I failed. And that's the intent of the law. The intent of the law is to show us our own failure. It's like a mirror. It's not to condemn us, but to reveal to us we are unable To provide God that perfect sacrifice. I mean, look at it this way. The Bible says that if you've broken any law, you're a lawbreaker. And so we kind of measure things, though, in how bad I am compared to you. And so we go, well, you know, I'm pretty bad, but not as bad as you, as if that's okay. You're really in trouble. I remember when I was invited to church, and I remember thinking, man, I'm bad. I, I, I admit I'm a bad person, but I'm not that bad that I need to go to church. I really believe that. It's like, I'm not that bad. I mean, I'm pretty bad. But, you know, me and God are still okay. No, 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 no. No, I needed forgiveness. You need forgiveness. I'm here. I think God would help me to remind you. You are that bad. And so am I. And that's what the law shows us. And it was in the box to remind them. The law revealing of failure had the lid on it, the mercy seat, reminding you with the blood sprinkled on it of forgiveness. It's a beautiful thing. And this was an important part of the life. You could say this was the most important part of the life of the children of Israel. This would be the place where the high priest would come out and declare that the blood has been offered and that God is forgiven. This was significant. As the high priest entered, that miraculous substitutionary sacrifice and forgiveness would flow. Today, the Jewish people celebrate the Day of Atonement. And it's also known as Yom Kippur. The only problem is, is that they're unable to celebrate it in the way that the Bible prescribes for one significant reason. There is no temple. There's no temple there today. And so instead of offering a blood sacrifice, they have turned Yom Kippur, many of them have today, turned it into a day of measuring my good and bad, like a day of good deeds. And now how they offer themselves to God is they kind of measure their life and say, well, you know, I did a little bit more than good than I did bad this year. So God, I know you accept that because I'm a good person. But there's no bloodshed. And so today, the Jewish people that the Bible says their eyes are still blinded, those that haven't received Messiah as their Savior, they live in such a way where they <clears throat> might use this day to go to a synagogue uh, not unlike, you know, people today where they, they may find themselves in church only on Christmas and Easter. Well, in, Drew, in Israel it's the same, but except it's the synagogue on Yom Kippur. There's no sacrifice, no bloody hands, not even a looking to the coming of Messiah. It's a very secular celebration. And there are always those that take advantage of that where they'll be walking around and you can buy these little red cords and they'll put them on your wrist and you throw a couple shekels in their can and that becomes your good deed of the day. And you can offer up how many good deeds you've done and completely miss the point that in order for your sins to be forgiven, somebody's got to die. Messiah. So notice in verse 15, then he shall kill the goat. So now that the bull has been offered, he'll kill the goat of the sin offering, which is for the people, and bring its blood inside the veil and do with that blood as he did with the blood of the bull and sprinkle it on the mercy seat and before the mercy seat. So that he shall make atonement, verse 16, for the holy place, because of the uncleanness of the children of Israel, and because of their transgressions, and for all their sins. And he shall do to the tabernacle of meeting which remains among them in the midst of their uncleanness. There shall be no man in the tabernacle of meeting when he goes in to make atonement of the holy place. He can only go in alone until he comes out that he might make atonement for himself, for his household, and for all of the congregation of Israel. It's amazing, in the Old Covenant, only the high priest can go in. But now we learn, because Jesus is a greater high priest, that you and I can come right into the throne room of grace to find help in time of need today. He's so much greater, so much more wonderful. But for the high priest here, only he could go in. And he would go in very carefully and very precisely. Verse 18, and he shall go out to the altar before the Lord and make atonement for it. And shall take some of the blood in the bull and some of the blood of the goat, and put it on the horns of the altar all around, and he shall sprinkle some of the blood on it with the finger seven times, cleanse it, sanctify it from all uncleanness of the children of Israel. And so he would be confessing and laying his hands uh, with the blood of the bull and the goat now, and even set aside all of the implements of worship, that they might all be recognized as used for God alone. To set apart, to sanctify. Now, notice verse 20. When he had made an end of atonement for the holy place, the tabernacle of the meeting and the altar, he shall bring the live goat. And don't you think by now the live goat is just like feeling relieved? A little worried, but relieved. You know, goats have the weirdest eyes. Have you noticed? They have the weirdest eyes. And can you imagine these two goats coming up and they're just kind of figuring things out and and they cast lots and they say, oh, you're the ones being sacrificed and then you're the one that's gonna make it and their eyes just go, oh, man. They're like, this is a crazy time. And so now the one that was sacrificed already, they bring the second goat. And who knows what he's thinking. He might go, man, I hope they don't do to me what they did to my brother. But that's, he's walking up and he comes and notice It says, Aaron shall lay, verse 21, both his hands on the head of the live goat, confess over it all the iniquities of the children of Israel, and all their transgressions concerning all their sins, putting them on the head of the goat, and shall send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a suitable man. And the goat shall bear on itself all their iniquities to an uninhabited land, and he shall release the goat in the wilderness. This is amazing. This is so powerful that now this goat that's alive would be brought to the priest and his bloody hands would be on with fresh blood on his head and he would confess, notice what it says, all the iniquities, all of the transgressions and concerning all their sins. Now I believe this is an indication that the priest is actually rehearsing specific sins, I don't believe it's a, a ceremony where it's just a few seconds. God, we put all the sins of the children of Israel on there, but rather, I believe that there is a list of sins that he is laying on the goat. Adultery, lying, gossip, and on and on. Whatever it was in the company that year that the priest would deal with and they'd minister to, he would have his hands on that goat. And then they would take the goat and give find a suitable man because the suitable man would then take that goat and walk away with it, leading it away to send it off into the wilderness. So what it would look like right here. You know, we'd find a suit. We'd have the goat here, lay hands on it, find a suitable man, and we'd ask you to walk east and you would take off east and you'd pass Watkins and you'd pass Bennett and you'd go all the way and you're headed toward Lyman. You're going to pass Lyman because we want you to let him go in Kansas and get lost in a cornfield somewhere that you would never see that goat again. Consider the imagery that every year the children of Israel would see. You would watch that goat because the high priest was confessing your sin. And the sins would be laid on the head of that goat. And the goat would be given to that suitable man and he would walk away and you would watch in a very visible way the sins of your life in this past year, walk away with them. And then you'd see the man stop somewhere in the distance and he'd untie the goat and he would shush him and Get him going, and you'd see the goat running away for its life, scared to death, I'm sure. And just running, running, running until you didn't see it anymore. It's a powerful illustration. Because it really gives a great insight to the greater forgiveness that you and I enjoy in Jesus Christ through the new covenant. Because remember what Isaiah said? As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. So we, would, we don't have the opportunity today to every year we say, okay, bring the goats, and one we're going to offer up, and one we're going to send away. We don't have that today because instead of looking to the goat that's being released, the scapegoat, and now you can see how different it is, how the world messed it up because when the, word, the phrase scapegoat's used today, it's kind of used as somebody's going you know, to take the, take the blame for everything and take the fall. But see, the goat this goat didn't take the fall. It was released It actually got out better. It got out better than his brother that got sacrificed. You see, the scapegoat is a type and a picture of Jesus Christ, who as you watch him on the cross with his arms outstretched and his face Destroyed and his body just mangled and bloody, with dry. When you see all the congeal, and you see him there, you go, oh, oh, it's no good, it's over. There's no hope. And then you see them take him down, and they put him into a into a tomb, and they seal it up. And you walk away like the two men on the road to Emmaus, and say, oh, it's over. I don't know what we're going to do with our lives now. All of our hopes are are gone and buried and sealed. And the scapegoat not only reminds us of the forgiveness of sins. But the scapegoat also reminds us of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that things are better than they look today. They are better than what you see today. They are better than what you think today if you place your faith in Jesus Christ because death always leads to resurrection in Jesus. And as you watch the scapegoat run away with your sin of adultery, with your sin of lying, with your sin, you don't knit to the goat anymore. You look to the cross. And as far as the east is from the west, God has removed your sin from you and me by the blood of Jesus Christ. This is serious stuff here. As the Hebrews were reading this letter, this is what was in their minds. This is what they would remember. This was what they were raised on. And you see, they want to leave the sufficiency of forgiveness in Jesus and go backwards And we're going to learn as we continue to study in Hebrews that Jesus is a far greater high priest than Aaron or any of his relatives ever were and ever will be. It's so encouraging as our sins have been removed from us. You know, when we ask for forgiveness as believers, it's different. Because the Bible says in 1 John 1, 9, that if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. God is not giving you a new outpouring of forgiveness. He's forgiven you your sin, past, present, and future. But why do we confess our sins as believers if we've already been forgiven by Jesus Christ? And I'll tell you why not only, number one, because the Bible tells you to in 1 John 1, 9, but number two, when you confess your sins as a believer, you don't get a fresh outpouring of forgiveness. You simply tap into the forgiveness that's already yours, and what confession does for the believer is bring back the enjoyment of your relationship with God, where you're able then to rejoice his love and his forgiveness, because anyone here that has ever lived as a believer in some backslidden, some unconfessed sin situation, you can tell us you would be able to come up and share your testimony of how dark and hard your life was as you chose to live that way. Oh, God still loved you, but, but like a cloud, you know, when the sun's beating, you know, when it's cloudy outside, you could easily be deceived in thinking the sun doesn't exist anymore. But you know, the clouds are just covering the sun. (laughs) The sun's already there. It's always there. The clouds are just covering your ability to see it and enjoy it. That's why in Jude, it speaks of keeping ourselves in the love of God. And confession is part of keep yourselves. It's not that God stops loving you, but keep in a place where you can enjoy the love of God. And today, we're reminded that there was much involved, including the scapegoat. And you just think, oh... What a beautiful picture of my sin running away. I'm not running after sin anymore. It's running away from me. And I can live a life that pleases God and honors him. And I can worship him the way he desires. So much more available to us in Jesus. Well, the rest of the chapter from verses 16 or verses 23 through 28 is how to clean up. So notice it says, Aaron shall come into the tabernacle of meeting and take off the linen garments which he put on. When he went into the holy place, and he shall leave them there, and he shall wash his body with water in a holy place, put on his garments, come out, and offer his burnt offering and the burnt offering of the people, and make atonement for himself and for the people. That the fat of the sin offering he shall burn on the altar, and he who released the goat as the scapegoat shall wash his clothes and bathe his body in water, and afterward he can come into the camp. Verse 27. The bull for the sin offering and the goat for the sin offering, whose blood was brought in to make atonement in the holy place, shall be carried outside the camp, and they shall burn in the fire their skins, their flesh, and their offal. And he who burns them shall wash his clothes, bathe his body in water, and afterward he can come into the camp. And so there was a need to cleanse. It was a very messy, bloody thing, this day of atonement. Which one more thing I I forgot to mention, I want to come back to the scapegoat because very specifically it says that he confessed those sins and we were mentioning how they... We're not just like a general sense, but also a specific sense. And I want to bring that home to you for a second because this is one of the things that we learned as I was raising my kids. And so I've raised all three of my kids into adulthood. And so walking through when they were kids as believers, we taught them that when they confess their sin, that they should be very precise and specific when they do that. And so we didn't allow this in our home. Uh, we didn't allow it. We didn't allow, you know, if my kid, my boys were fighting in the other room and you're just hearing boom and they're hitting their heads against the wall and boom, boom, and finally it ends with, oh, you kicked me in the head. So we would run over there and go, wait, man, what's going on? Guys, what are you doing? Oh, you know, just having fun. and uh, You kicked me in the head. Okay, 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 well, sit down and you guys need to make it right. One thing we wouldn't allow is, we wouldn't allow them to sit down and say, well, you know what? I'm sorry for something. Maybe whatever I did, maybe might have hurt you sometime in the past. We wouldn't let them do that. Have you ever received an apology like that, by the way? Where you're trying to reconcile with someone and they come and go, you know, I'm sorry if maybe ever once time in the whole life I ever did something to hurt you. It's kind of your fault you got hurt, but I'm sorry. How did that make you feel? We didn't allow that in our home. Instead, we taught our kids... And prayerfully, we will do the same because we're God's kids, right? That we'll look them in the eye and we taught Let's say, you know, that Josh was kicking, Josh, he kicked Eddie in the head, right? Kicked him in the teeth. So this is what we'd say. We'd say, this is how you apologize. This is how you make it right. You look your brother in the eye and you say, will you forgive me for kicking you in the teeth? That's what we'd tell him to do. Because when you do that, number one, you are taking responsibility specifically for your actions. And so let's say you have an issue with the body, some, a brother or sister and you said something bad about them. You go to them and you look them in the eye and say, will you please forgive me for gossiping about you? And give them the chance to forgive you for that specific. It's, I mean, coming to someone and go, you know, I'm sorry, maybe I did. You may have good intents because sometimes you'll follow up and go, well, you know, I, the apology is I'm sorry, I didn't mean it that way. Okay, that's a different discussion, and that's a valid discussion. We can talk about that later, what you meant or didn't mean. But the reality is, is you said it, you meant it in the moment, and it hurt the person. So let's deal with that first, and then we can talk about the motives. We can talk about, in a relationship, what you really meant. and That's how the family of God should operate, that we confess our specific sins to one another. Especially when we've sinned against one another. Will you forgive me? If you add that to your vocabulary, you will find so many more relationships restored and healed. It's amazing. It is amazing how God works. It's amazing. Because this Bible study and whether I'm here and what time I'm going to teach it was today. So wouldn't you know it? Wouldn't you know it? That sitting in the front row today, was somebody I personally offended, personally. I know when I did it, I know what I said, and I tried to reach out to them by email, but I have a bad email, so it got bounced back, and it's been heavy on my heart for a few weeks now. And wouldn't you know it, the brother's sitting in the front row, and I'm teaching how to reconcile a situation. So you know what I did after service? I walked out right back those doors and ran to my office. No, I didn't do that. I didn't do that. (laughs) I came down off the stage. I stopped by him and I said, hey, brother, it's good to see you here today. You haven't been here in a while. I I want to talk to you before you leave. And he says, okay. And I was able to come up to him, look him in the eye, and say, will you forgive me? And I shared what I did because he knows exactly what I did. And you know what his response was? Just like that. Forgive you. And you know what? I, too, handled that conversation wrong. And boom, it was just kumbaya crying. No, we didn't do that, but it was great. It's very easy. I wonder what God's doing in your life. I wonder if you just be open and sensitive to the Holy Spirit and immediately obey how much freedom the Lord will give you. I can't tell you. I mean, it's, it's one episode, but I can't tell you how good I feel now that that's one less thing in my life. And it was my fault. I did it. I, I, shouldn't, have, I shouldn't have answered his question that way. Because, you know, sometimes you guys wake up with days like that. Do you wake up like days like that? Are there some days people, you know, you say the wrong thing? Yes? No? Because all of you are like, oh, man, well, if we have a pastor like that, honey, we got to find another church, you know, because, like, like we all do that. It was, it, was just a, it was a bad day. It was bad timing. It would have been better for me just to, just to say nothing. But, see, God wants to reconcile. He wants to make things right in our lives. He wants the church of Jesus Christ to represent what it looks like to live in forgiveness. But here's the thing you won't ever experience the need to forgive unless you're hurt. Unless some mistake or sin was made. And that's where the church does get messy. Even from the pastor, it gets messy. And I'm grateful for the grace of God that I don't need to follow a goat to Kansas to remember that I'm forgiven. I can just look to the cross and know that he's faithful to forgive me of all of my sins. Well, in verse 29, it says, this shall be a statute forever for you. In the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, you shall afflict your souls and do no work at all, whether a native of your own country or stranger who sojourns among you. For on that day the priest shall make atonement for you to cleanse you that you may be clean from all your sins before the Lord. It is a Sabbath of solemn rest for you. And you shall afflict your souls. It's a statute forever. And the priest who is anointed and consecrated to minister as priest in his father's place shall make atonement and put on the linen cloths and the holy garments. And he shall make atonement for the holy sanctuary. He shall make atonement for the tabernacle of meaning and for the altar. He shall make atonement for the priests and all the people of the congregation. And this shall be an everlasting statute for you, to make atonement for the children of Israel for their sins once a year. And he did as the Lord commanded Moses. And so this would be the tenth day of the seventh month. On the first day of the seventh month, the trumpets were blown to announce the beginning of a new year, Rosh Hashanah. On the 10th day, then, was the Day of Atonement. And then right after the Day of Atonement came the Feast of Tabernacles, or of Booths, which started on the 15th day of the month and lasted for a week. So we've studied all this in depth Uh, throughout Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. we studied it all verse by verse. Uh, Those studies are all up on the website, and they're available to you. But for those of you now that have never studied verse by verse through a chapter in Leviticus, congratulations! You made it through. And it's good stuff, isn't there? Now, next time when you start reading the Bible through a year, you know, you start off in Genesis, oh, no problem. Exodus, oh, no problem. Leviticus, big problem. And you just close up and go, I'll never understand. I just believe God wants, he he wants to remind us, some of you have a problem reading some of the Bible because you read with this attitude of having to understand everything. And when you start to not understand things, it frustrates you because you just want to understand everything. I've been studying the Bible for twenty, almost 28 years and I learn something just about every day. And so you read the Bible not about understanding every word and every, although you can study it for sure, but turn our, your approach to not reading the Bible for like specific understanding and knowledge, but for understanding who God is and his love for you because you can see now in this chapter in Leviticus 16 how powerful it is a picture and a type of Jesus Christ. Powerful on more than one level. And if you read your Bible looking for Jesus, Old Testament types and pictures, obviously New Testament very obvious to see, you'll be so much more fulfilled. And then as you study through, you'll be able to learn. Every time you read, you learn a bit more, a little bit more, a little bit more. Remember, there's a website that's free. It has resources that I used to have on my desk, um, books all over my desk. But you can use this free resource. It's called blueletterbible.org. And it has for free, literally thousands upon thousands of dollars worth of Bible study resources. And it's a trustworthy place. And you can look things up there. You can look at different translations. You can look at Bible handbooks. You can, I mean, if you only had to buy one book in your Bible reading, I would buy a Bible handbook. Uh, I recommend Haley's Bible handbook. Um, That's a good one. Uh, Nelson, Nelson, the publisher, Nelson also puts out a handbook. And what a handbook is, is basically an expanded dictionary, but it goes through chapter by chapter of the Bible. And so you read through, I'm sure Haley's Bible Handbook is just a couple paragraphs covering this whole chapter, but then at least you get some instruction and you won't be so frustrated to put your Bible down and never open it again. And so for those of you that, uh, that made it through a chapter of Leviticus, you see there's a lot to learn and God has a lot to say to us. And so just congratulations, you did it. So let's do more and we'll go do more and study more and let the Holy Spirit change us from the inside out. So let's pray. Father, thank you for the privilege of teaching and studying and growing. And and whether it's Leviticus or Matthew, whether it's Deuteronomy or Revelation, all your word is inspired. And I'm grateful that you would give us pastors and teachers and the very presence of your Holy Spirit to teach us and lead us. Let us be enamored with you, Jesus, our great high priest, greater than any high priest that's come before us. And again, God, be with the ladies coming back from the retreat. Be with all the new friends I met on the East Coast, up in New Jersey and all that area, Lord, as they've worshipped today and and just so grateful all throughout Pennsylvania and New Jersey and New Hampshire, all the wonderful people that we met and ministered to and even meeting Rob, you know, for the first time and Heidi and serving alongside of them and, and just so much, Lord, so rich that we have to have a body of Christ like ours. So would you pour out your spirit upon us as we come to you and serve and we come to you and surrender our lives that you would have your way in our lives. And even as the church is praying, if you're here today and you've never given your life to Jesus Christ, I want to invite you to do that right now. If today you would receive the blood of the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, to forgive you of your sins, would you just stand to your feet? I want to pray with you today. If today you'd say, Ed, I need to get my life right with God, and I want to express my faith in Jesus Christ, stand up today. Let me pray for you. God bless you over here. And, man, I'm telling you, God is wanting you to come to Him. God bless you in the back. Today's the day. This is the day. This is the moment. God wants to draw you to Himself. God bless you. He's used this little Bible study. You think of what a mess it was to offer these animals up to a holy and a righteous God. But you don't have to do that today. The Son of God has provided himself a sacrifice for you. That you can come by faith and believe in the finished work of Jesus Christ. And that today you can be born again. A miraculous thing happens. You don't see it. And some of you won't even feel it. You just leave here believing it. Is there anyone else? Maybe out on the radio, you're listening in on a radio station somewhere, and God has just spoke to your heart right through the radio. God bless you as you respond to the gospel, the good news that your sins can be forgiven. Watching online right now, God has used technology to bring you right into the room. It's an amazing thing. So grateful. And so fulfill this Bible verse. It says, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus... And believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So you can do that right now by praying to God. You say, God, I ask you to forgive me of all of my sins because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ for my life. And I believe he lived and died and rose again to forgive me of my sins. And I dedicate my life to following you, God, from this day forward. Help me to turn away from my sinful past and to live my life for you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We pray that you've been encouraged by this Bible study delivered live from the sanctuary of Calvary Aurora. For prayer or a copy of this study, call us at 877-30-GRACE. That's 877-304-7223